Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Joy to be with you again, to be before you, and to get into God's holy word. Uh, in light of the reality, that's what we're doing, going to a holy God in his holy word by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and ask for his help one more time. <clears throat> Father, make the book live. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Make it pierce to our hearts and reveal what's inside. May we see that which is sin, confess, hate it, repent of it, and even by your spirit put it to death. May we see that which is a work of your grace. And may we celebrate and glory and rejoice with words that are far too few. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Context is king. I am not a sketchball, and holiness is not a bad word. <laughs> Context is king. I am not a sketchball, and holiness is not a bad word. Let me explain and illustrate and give you context so that you understand what I'm even talking about as I open up on this Sunday morning. I am not a sketchball. A few weeks ago, I challenge y'all to invite new people into your house, to get to know one another, to build new relationships. And I said that inevitably in those conversations, when Rachel and I invite people into our home, inevitably every single time they end up asking the question, how did y'all meet? And I hate this question, not because I hate the conversation, but because a simple answer to this question leads people to believe I'm a sketchball. How did you all meet? Well, see, I was a high school football coach and she was a cheerleader. And I said this to you guys a few weeks ago, and there were gasping groans, and you judged me even then, proving my point. <clears throat> I'm hesitant to give these simple answers. In both services, both times I got judged, and I did not give further context. So let me give you that context this morning to prove to you I'm not a sketchball. <laughs> when we met, and I was a high school football coach, she was a cheerleader. But I was not sketchy, I was not perverse, this was not criminal. The context is that I was a 19-year-old sophomore at UNC Charlotte. She was a 17-year-old senior at East Lincoln High School. I was a quarterback coach on the varsity and an offensive coordinator for the JV team. A backup quarterback on the team and the heartbeat relationally of our team tragically died in a car accident. On the way home from Monday from practice, he, he had the wreck, and he was in the hospital until Wednesday. And on Wednesday, he was on life support, but his family had let us know they were going to take him off life support. And so we told the players right after school, they're taking Travis off life support tonight. And I told a few of the guys, hey, if you want to get your sleeping bags, I'll go back to UNCC, get my stuff, and we can sleep on the floor in the field house, at least so we're together when Travis passes away. So I told a couple of players that I came back to about 30 uh, who were spending the night uh, with us that night. And we just sat in the stadium and were together when Travis passed away. But just before all of that happened, there was a soccer game at the field that night. And some of those players, just after we told them what was happening that night, went and told other people, including Rachel, who was a cheerleader at East Lincoln High School. I looked up and I saw her on the track just after one of the players told her that Travis was going to pass away and that this was the third death in an 18-month span of the same friend group in the same class in car accidents. And I saw her crying tears just like I'd seen so many teenagers, even one one of those teenagers, one of those deaths had died just previously a few weeks prior to that. And Travis, the guy who now was going to pass away, had dated that girl. And I'd helped Travis wrestle through her death. 
And so in that, I watch someone tell Rachel what's happening, and I go up and I share the same words of encouragement and point her to Christ as I had dozens and dozens and dozens of other teenagers. We did not date then, but that is how we met. And now understanding that context suddenly makes it a little bit different. When you understand, no, no, okay, we're only a couple years apart, and we didn't date them. In fact, we met through tragedy. We obviously built a friendship that year that led to a first date nearly a year later when she was 18 and I was 20. <laughs> and everything in between, almost all of the conversations were about the Lord. So again, it wasn't sketchy, it wasn't perverse, nor criminal. In fact, four years later, in God's sweet providence, we recognized his kindness in hindsight. I took her back to that same spot on the track and I got on one knee and I proposed to her. And I asked her to come exalt the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together from Psalm 34. Context is king. I am not a sketchball. But context is king. Holiness is not a bad word. This morning, as we move into the body of this little epistle written by Peter, it's crucial we remember the context of the first 12 verses so that we don't wrongly conclude that holiness is a bad word. Peter has gone to great lengths to describe the glorious grace and mercy of our salvation in Christ. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to the Son and sprinkling with His blood. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ we've been born again, new to a living hope, to this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven, unfading for us. We are being guarded and we'll make it through. Even when we're going through trials, we'll make it through as Christ is using these trials, even for our good, using them to reveal, refine, and reward our faith on that great day. We love him, we believe in him, and we rejoice with inexpressible joy, joy that transcends our ability to put that into words. The prophets longed for our day and the angels marvel at it even now. We live in such a privileged moment of redemptive history on this side of the cross of Christ. And all of this, according to verse 3, was according to his great mercy. We did nothing to earn any of it. Everything in verses 1 through 12 is all about what God has done in Christ. It's one long sentence in Greek in the original language, and there's not one single imperative or command in that long sentence. With this context set in concrete clarity, Peter now moves into his first imperative or his first command about what we ought to do in response to all that God has done. And in our text today, you see two primary imperatives. First in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the day of Christ Jesus. And then verse 14 to 16, he exhorts us to be holy. So again, understand the context. Get this correct. Because God has saved you, because the work is finished, you are to live to please God by setting your hope on future grace and by being holy. If you miss this context, then you'll make the horrific mistake of thinking you must live holy to get God to save you. And then holiness, if you think about holiness that way, then holiness is a bad word. And understand why you don't like the word holiness. This is legalism. This is works righteousness that gives man glory and crushes him all at once. This is not the gospel. No. That would be to forget to look in the rear view at the resurrection and remember your new birth. He saved you. That would be forget to look in front of you and remember your inheritance is being kept safe in heaven. He will save you. That'd be to forget to look and know he's guarding and guiding you all the way to that. He is saving you. That'd be to forget that he saved you in the past, is saving you presently, and will save you in the future. 
The gospel is, Jesus saved you, therefore you are to live holy. The gospel is not live holy, therefore Jesus will save you. The gospel is that God sets you free, so live holy. The gospel is not live holy so that God will set you free. They're indicatives of what God has done. And then comes the imperatives of what you should do. These imperatives don't talk God into doing the indicatives. Tetelestai comes before, therefore be holy. It is finished comes before, therefore live differently. Context is king. Holiness is not a bad word. And with that point clear, Peter makes plain what we are to do. Because there is grace in the rear view, in front of you, and guiding you, be hopeful and be holy. If you believe the grace you say you believe, be hopeful and be holy. Let's look at both of those one at a time. First, set your hope on his future grace. Set your hope on his future grace. Again, verse 13. Now, I just want you to know my introduction was actually an exposition of the first word of verse 13, therefore. So if you skip over therefore, you're going to miss the whole thing. Holiness is going to be a bad word. No, no, therefore is pregnant with meaning. Verses 1 through 12, pregnant in verse 13, therefore. So understand that context or else you'll totally misunderstand and make the wrong conclusions about what holiness is and about the call and exhortation and command even to be holy. In light of God's mercifully electing, new birthing, inheritance giving salvation, we are called to live differently. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you might read verse 13 and think, wait a minute, it seems like there are three commands there. So we got to have a little bit of uh, grammar lessons that's going to bore most of you, but some of you are going to geek out over it. So I'm going to give it to you uh, for, the, for the few of you that, that and can understand what's happening. So preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded are actually participles, dependent participles, that are dependent on the main exhortation or command or imperative, which is set your hope fully. So they have an imperatival force, meaning you read them, and it's right for them to sound like that means i got to do something. That force ought to be there, but it's connected to set your hope fully. So basically, what, what is under, like if you're going to set your hope fully on the grace that is be revealed, then you must prepare your mind for actions, and you must be sober-minded. So let's look at those three phrases. Uh, first, those two clauses that kind of set us up to understand this main clause. Let's look at them one by one. So by pr- preparing your mind for action. Now, this phrase in Greek is, uh, can be rather entertaining for us and confusing if you read and understand the original phrase. The, the actual phrase translated preparing your minds is gird up the loins. Now, what does it mean to gird up the loins of your mind for action? Ancient Israel, men wore longer flowing, free flowing garments. So we might call them a dress, uh, making fun of it, but there were longer free flowing garments that were dignified. That, that kind of symbolized status, and, and they were clean and dignified. So if they were going to run or do some kind of work, obviously these free-flowing garments would hinder their ability to do that. So what they would do is they would take them up and they would tuck them in their belt so that then they could run or they could do particular manual labor without their garments getting in the way. So Peter begins now, because of verse 1 through 12, and all that's true, gird up the loins of your mind or prepare your mind for action. Understand, you're about to get to work. You're about to get after it. So you've got you like, you to have the right kind of mindset to understand if I'm going to live now because all that's true in 1 through 12, i got to get after it. And in order to get after it, first got to prepare my mind for this kind of action. 
I got to get my mind right. I got to roll up my sleeves. I got I to think. Effort is not a bad word. Trying to grow in holiness is not against grace. Grace motivates our effort to grow in holiness. Effort's not a bad word. Righteousness is not a bad word. Holiness is not a bad word. Effort, this is, these are not bad words. They're totally horrific if you get them out of context and out of order. But once you understand, to tell us that, once you understand it is finished, now because it's finished, I'm going to get after it. Like, we, we can't be afraid of this kind of language in the church. We are called, God has saved us to prepare a holy people, to grow us in holiness. So we, we must prepare our minds for action. We got to live, get ready to live differently by first thinking differently. If you're going to run this race that grace has begun, and grace will carry you through, and grace will get you home in, you must prepare your mind to act out of the realities of this new life you've been received, or you, that you have received by grace. Brings to mind that great text in, in that picture in Hebrews chapter 12. After the hall of faith, looking at those who labored and did great things of faith and throughout redemptive history, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To, to, to set your mind fully on the grace that is to come, you must prepare your mind to think differently and prepare for action to live differently. Tom Schreiner, one scholar, says, hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking. Thinking in a new way does not happen automatically. It requires effort, concentration, and intentionality. You must be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Paul says in Romans 12.2. And that's in view of God's great mercies, 12.1. Because of grace and mercy, then be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But this involves and includes effort and work to grow in holiness. So you must be prepared to submit your previous ways of thinking to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures say about any and every given matter. You must prepare your mind for action. You must understand you don't sit over and stand over the Bible in judgment deciding what you think about it. You sit underneath it letting it tell you what it thinks about you. you got to prepare your mind for action. But also, he says, by being sober-minded. So secondly, again, if you're going to set your hope on future grace, you must not only prepare your mind for action, but you also must make sure it is sober. Not merely from alcohol, but from the drunken stupor caused by worldly thinking. Now, drunkenness is an apt metaphor that Peter is using here. Worldly thinking makes you mentally inebriated. When you think like the world, you're mentally, spiritually drunk. And Peter's saying, no, no, because of all this, you've heard the truth now. Like, you've, you've been rewired. You understand this gospel. You've received a new heart. you received a new mind. Therefore, prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. Don't think like you're still drunk. This is a good metaphor. I don't know if you've ever been around a drunk person, but think about this for a minute. Drunk people are often very sincere. Sometimes more sincere when they're drunk than they are when they're sober. But their sincerity and even their passion to defend or justify or explain themselves in their drunken state is so embarrassing. It's often painfully unaware and painfully foolish. Not only that, it leads to horrendous judgment of right and wrong, of wise and unwise. People make horrendous judgments and get behind the wheel of a car or commit acts that they would never have committed if they had been sober. 
So Peter is saying, if you want to live with hope and future grace, if you're going to live with the hope necessary in this journey towards heaven, you must be sober-minded rather than mentally inebriated by foolish thinking. Brothers and sisters, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded so that the main imperative, you can set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ, God has saved you to a new life. In order to live this new life, you must have your hope fully set on the grace to be revealed on that great day. you got to have your eyes on the prize. If you don't have your eyes on the prize, you're not going to run the race the right way. But you got to know, no, no, that's coming. That day's coming. I'm living for that day, not this day. In this day, I'm living for that day. And that changes how I go between here and there. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, there is unutterable joy in front of you. There is an eternal inheritance in front of you that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept safe just for you. You will not be the least bit disappointed when you get there. It's so much better than you can imagine. So, Like in order to help serve to that end, just consider some of the most precious moments in this life, this side of glory. Think about the joys of effortless conversation and belly laughter with a close friend. Those majestic moments of intimacy with a spouse that has profound encouragement to your soul. The swelling heart of delight when you look upon the pure joy of your child. The chest-pounding thrill of a hard-fought victory. The satisfaction of a job well done and a, and a nice paycheck to reward the effort. The beaming pride you've witnessed in your parents or your teachers or your coach's eyes when you've labored and worked hard. The groom's smile when the lovely bride walks down the aisle. The ecstatic joys of a wedding reception. Completion and enjoyment of a perfect piece of art. The transcendent beauty of an evening sky at sunset. The tranquil lapping of the waves on the beach at sunrise. That first bite of a perfectly smoked brisket. <laughs> Whoo, my Lord. Triple threat chocolate cake from Cheesecakes by Alex. That's for wifey. Brothers and sisters, these glorious moments are mere aromas of the appetizer that is to come. Perhaps you'd be helped by reading portions or maybe all of Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. That helps you think, no, no, like you think so little about heaven. It's so much better. Like these are just little smells of the appetite of the four-course meal that we'll have with our Christ, our bridegroom and his bride in this reception forever. Like you're just getting little sense of it. So you have to set your hope fully there. Don't even set some of your hope here. Set fully your hope on that reward. On the four-course meal at the wedding reception of the Lamb. But understand this. That setting your hope in that future grace will be a grind. So gird up your loins. Get your mind right. Be sober-minded. Mentally prepare like this is a race or a fight or a competition. Because your enemies are going to fight against you to get you to not do this very thing. The world doesn't want you to think on the future grace to come. The world does not want you to live in the fear of the Lord, nor in light of the coming reward on Judgment Day. 
Satan does not want you to set your mind on things that are above where Christ is at the Father's right hand. Your old sinful ways of thinking are not interested in sober thinking about standing before God on judgment day and giving an account for your life. You would rather be drunk than think about that according to your old nature. Satan, your flesh, this world do not necessarily care what it takes to take your mind off of that just as long as your mind's not on it. So mindless scrolling through social media? All right, if that takes your mind off the glory to come, Satan's cool with you mindlessly scrolling on social media. Your sinful flesh is happy to escape there. This broken world is happy to sit and study how to make you addicted to keep doing it. Obsession with sensual pleasure here and now. Numbing yourself to serious questions about God and life through entertainment or alcohol or drugs or video games or TikTok dances or Instagram. All of your enemies are happy to use any of these things to get you to not think about that day. Again, Schreiner says there's a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. If we're going to live this new life God has called us to, we must be prepared to sober up with the scriptures rather than getting drunk with more scrolling. Maybe it's not entertainment or social media for you. So I just a few questions before we move on to the second point and uh, command. What do you need to do to prepare your mind for action? What do you need to do to prepare your mind for action? All of us ought to memorize scripture. All of us ought to commit to being known and to knowing. Again, our community groups are launching today. I'm, I'm, I'm certain most of them with Super Bowl parties, which is wonderful. Get in the community, get to know people, watch the game. But understand, no, I need to get in these community groups and I need to know and be known. I need people to help me apply the scriptures to my life. I need to help them prepare my mind for this. Where might, you be, where might your thinking still be worldly, leading you to a spiritual inebriation? Some of you wonder, and I don't say this with harshness in my heart, I promise. I say it with a pastoral concern, hoping it shocks you into what's good for you. But some of you wonder why you keep doing dumb stuff. And you wonder wrongly if you're even saved. But friend, drunk people do dumb stuff. It might be that you're, the issue is not that you're not saved. It might be that you're drunk on worldly thinking. Like you still think like you're not a believer. And so you keep doing dumb things because you're living like you're, you're mentally and spiritually drunk. You need your mind to be renewed. You need to know the scriptures. You need to, you're, gonna, you, you're not going to stop doing things. You've got you to be renewed in truth. So you think rightly. You've got to sober up by being washed with the water of the word. What might seek to prevent you from setting your hope fully on the future grace? If you were Satan or a demon, how would you attack you to get your eyes off the prize? What would be the easiest way to keep you from looking and hoping in future grace? Not believing that day's coming, just make you numb or ignorant to it. Not believing that day's going to be glorious, you think it's going to be boring, so you don't look forward to it. Maybe not believing you'll give an account for your life. There's not the right kind of fear of the Lord. Maybe you believe the lie of our idols. You know, our, our idols are always promising us that they're better than God. They're always lying. <laughs> the psalmist in Psalm 16, 4 says that the sorrows of those who run after another God, their sorrows will multiply. Verse 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Our idols make all these promises, but leave us longing. 
Maybe you're believing those lies. Maybe you need to know, no, in Christ there is pleasure, there is happiness, there is joy. Holiness and happiness are not enemies, they're friends. Maybe you need to believe this. Secondly, so be hopeful in future grace. Secondly, be holy. Be holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It'd be appropriate to ask the question, why did God save you? And there are multiple right answers to this question. God saved you because he loved you. John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us that whoever believed would not perish but have eternal life, right? So it's right to say God saved you because he loved you. It's also right to say God saved you for his own glory. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that. Ephesians 1, 6 and 12 make that clear for the praise of his name that he saved us. But another right answer to this question that you need to consider is God saved you to make you holy. Like that's why he saved you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has always been about the holiness of his people. It was true of ancient Israel when Yahweh delivered uh, Israel from bondage in Egypt. He told them, this is why I've set you free. Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter picks this up later in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, saying that now the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation are a holy people, a priesthood of believers called out to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. God saved us to make us holy. Now, again, let me remind you, Context is king. He saved us to make us holy, not because we are holy. We're not holy to get him to save us. No, no, no. He saves us by grace. You were, listen, when you were dead in sin, there's nothing you could do to make God happy with you. You were dead. Like, I just, like, listen, just imagine going to a graveyard and speaking to a graveyard and be like, hey, you guys got to do a lot better than you're doing right now. Like, it makes no sense. They got to get up from the dead first. So he got you up from the dead to send you on and become holy. So listen, like this pursuit of holiness is I've been resurrected. I've been, I got a living hope. I've been born again. Therefore, be holy. So he gives us three actions to help us in this pursuit of holiness. Three actions to help us in the pursuit of holiness. Number one, and because again, I'm going to make sure context is king and you don't misunderstand this. Number one, remember your adoption. Remember your adoption. Verse 14. As obedient children. So again, Peter reminds us even right there of our identity. We are children of God. Because you have been born again, you are in the family. You have God as your benevolent and glorious father. You have a new last name, a new home, a new people, a new purpose, a new inheritance, a new future. You are not an orphan. You've been adopted by God. And he didn't adopt you into his family of light so that you could keep living in the streets of darkness. No, no, no. He brought you into the family. He said, no, no, you live in the light now. You don't keep living in the darkness when I bring you into the light. I rescued you from the darkness into this light. You're a beloved child of mine. You're now in the family. You represent the family. You live the blessings of the family, but you also live to represent the family. 
Therefore, remember in this family who's in charge. God is. Remember in this family who knows what's best. God does. Remember in this family who will protect and provide and teach us all that we need to know. God will. You are to obey him as an obedient child. You have a beloved master and king who's rigged it such that his grace leads you to want to obey him. And your obedience to him gives him more glory and you more joy. So again, he's married happiness and holiness in such a way that's like, no, no, when I'm living the way God's called me to live, to bring glory and honor to his name, that's when I'm the most satisfied. And so I got to understand, no, a lot of times most of my sorrows and difficulties in life is often because I'm running to sin rather than running to God. And so this is a beautiful picture that even when we suffer for God, as we suffer by his grace and for his glory, according to the power of his spirit and with his people, there is a joy that abounds and confuses even understanding. Now, this doesn't mean it's all easy or all natural. So we got to keep it real about this. This is the reason this whole epistle's got to exist. Like you've been used to living like an orphan, which means you look out for you and do whatever's best for you. Like when you're on the streets living for yourself, you just got to figure out how to survive. You are all you have time to be worried about. So it can be a strange thing experiencing conviction of sin and displeasure of the Father for the first time when you're a Christian. Like you're saved, you're like, man, I've always done this. But suddenly there's this like this disruption in my soul. Like I've always enjoyed this sin. Why, like why does it feel like something is off? Because you now understand I have a right relationship with my Father. Like we have dialogue, we have relationship, we have conversation. And it's possible to displease Him. Not in such a way that undermines or undoes my adoption, but because, in fact, he is my father, I have a relationship with him, I can displease him. I can grieve the spirit. I can quench the spirit. I can live to the pleasure of my father or in rebellion against my father. And I'm going to feel that now because I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me that leads me to cry out, Abba, Father. There's a real relationship. Now, again, this pleasure or displeasure isn't unto salvation. You've already received that. But listen, in some circles... People are so afraid of works-based righteousness that they're afraid to talk about obedience and holiness like they're bad words. They're not bad words. (laughs) You're supposed to want to please God. That's not a bad thing in any way, shape, or form. You can't do it in and of your own effort. Christ alone has done it for you. But because he's done it for you and that's been given freely to you, that now empowers and sends you forth to say, therefore, I want to please him. So we we gotta understand these aren't bad words. I'm serious. I've been in circles especially those who really, really love reformed, robust theology. I've been in circles where there are theologians who act like, listen, I'm not going to trust at all in my holiness or my good works. Amen. You should trust in Christ's holiness and his good works. But I'm going to prove that by dropping an F-bomb every time I'm around you. It's like, this is nonsense. Like, this is really nonsense. I had a pastor friend who's going to go speak at a conference. He was really excited. I was like, bro, I'm telling you, I got some concerns about these circles. It's almost like, like they've become antinomian, and I'm gonna, I don't have time to explain all that. But they, like they, they're so afraid of legalism, they've bounced to this licentiousness that dishonors so much of the Bible. No, no, I mean, I think it's going to be great. It's going to be great. This conference, all they do is talk about the indicatives, the finished work of Christ. They don't say anything about any imperative. So they would boast and brag, you're going to come to this conference, and you're not going to hear one command, one imperative. You're only going to hear about the finished work of Christ. So he went, and he speaks at it. He comes back, and he's like, Clint, you were right. Like, bro, the green room. I mean, F-bombs everywhere, alcohol consumption that I'm like, I, like, it was awful. 
That pastor, and I don't, I don't say this with a joy in my heart, that pastor ended up losing his ministry, had multiple affairs, lost his family. No, no, no. Like, we're supposed to pursue obedience. We're supposed to pursue holiness. We don't do it to earn anything from God. We do it because God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, so we get after it. These aren't bad words. They're horrific if we get them out of order. But we can't erase them from the Bible. No, no, we get it the right order. It's been given to us, therefore we go after it. Disobedience displeases God. You need to know that. Disobeying God displeases him. Now, not such that he kicks you out of the family, <laughs> but he's a loving father who says, when you disobey me, that's not for your good. That dishonors my name. It dishonors the name of my church. And I'll discipline you in order to bring you back into safety because I love you. I love you too much to watch you walk off this cliff to your sin to destroy you and dishonor me and dishonor my church. I just love you too much. This is what Hebrews says. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. So literally, the writer of Hebrews says, if you don't experience discipline of the Lord, you should be more concerned than if you do. <laughs> because a good father disciplines his children. A good father loves his children and what's best for them more than how they feel about him in a given moment. So it's the discipline in the way it should go, which leads to their blessing and his joy and, the, and the greater intimacy and communion together. It's helpful just to mention union and communion briefly to continue to help you understand how to keep this in context and not get it out of order. You're united to Christ by faith. That's your union. And when you unite to him by faith, when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. Currently, you're united to him. You're seated with him in glory, even right now, through union to Christ. That can never be taken from you. You're adopted. But your communion, your fellowship with him, can be influenced by your life. Your experience of his grace and his mercy and his kindness, and even of your union, it can't be taken from you, but your joy of enjoying it can be messed up by your own sin and rebellion against God. So maybe you could use, again, the adoption illustration. God will never unadopt you. But you can be adopted, get into his home, and, and keep living like you're in the streets, and it mess up your fellowship with him. He'll never unadopt you. But you can mess up the fellowship and joy of the Father. Or use marriage. You're united together. The two become one. You're, you're married. Now listen, if I never talk to my wife, if I never have a conversation with her, how's my marriage going to be going? Not great. Are we still married? Of course. So our union is still there, but our communion is off. So again, it's helpful to understand, no, 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 your obedience, your desire to please the Father, that does have bearing and impact on your intimacy with the Father. Shriner again. Peter recognized that the Christian life is not passive. Ungodly desires still beckon believers and tempt them to depart from God. They must refuse such desires and choose what is good. They're to do God's will just as obedient children obey their parents. Peter had no conception of the Christian life in which believers give mere mental assent to doctrines. So first action, remember you're adopted. The second two, much more quickly. Rebel against your former ignorance. So look, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So if you're going to grow in holiness, you got to be willing to rebel. Not against God, but against your former ignorance, against this broken world and against Satan himself, against your former sins and passions. Even if the unbelieving world clowns you for it, you should expect it. 
When you go rebelling against the way everybody else is going, they're not going to like it. Peter says this real clear, 1 Peter 4, verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So notice, holiness doesn't come without honesty and humility. You gotta be honest and humble enough to admit my former ways were ignorant. If you're not willing to admit that, you will not grow in holiness. If you're like, no, 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 I was really, really good before I became a Christian, and God's really lucky to have me on his team, just, okay, you'll just stay immature, and you're, you're going to stay in your spiritual drunkenness. you got to be honest and say, no, no, I was in my former ignorance. I didn't know. I didn't know the things of God. I didn't know how he thought about sensuality and, and my friend. I didn't know these things. I was ignorant. And you got to be willing to rebel against that ignorance. You got to realize those disobedient desires were the result of the mental drunkenness of your former life. And you must not conform to those desires if you're to live this new life. So there's certain things the Bible clearly calls sin that you can no longer live and enjoy in the dark. The light has exposed this darkness for you. You see it as sin now. The spirits at work in you, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you suddenly know, I can't do this anymore. Man, in my former ignorance, this was good. And now that I've seen the light, uh uh-uh, I can't. I just, this is not for me anymore. Again, this can be a bit of a startling experience, like a new child learning to walk and falling down, hitting your head when you fall down. It's like, man, that was not a good experience. (laughs) I want to get back up. I want to keep walking. I got to figure out how not to fall like that. Suddenly you might find yourself convicted because of the music you're listening to or the TV shows and movies you've been watching or how you're spending your time on your phone. Maybe your laziness, your gluttony your dishonesty or your anger or your lust or your pride or your selfish ambition. Whatever your background, your family, your culture, your political persuasion, your socioeconomic status, when you came to Christ, you brought plenty of worldly desires with you. And they're ignorant. One author says, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Sometimes the worst of all is when immature Christians malign you and give you a hard time about this new life. But Peter's clear, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. They might be natural to you. They might be your sincere desire. desire. Your old friends and family might encourage and tell you it's okay. But if God forbids it, it's wrong, period. As Cammie would say, holiness is still right, hell is still hot, and God is still real. That's Cammie. Do not be conformed to it any longer. You're no longer ignorant. Like you've seen God's beauty. You're not ignorant. You've seen his glory and his grace and his patience and his kindness. You know it's better than sin. You know he satisfies and it doesn't. You're no longer ignorant, so rebel against your ignorance. Know that lust is lying to you. Lust is merely the desire of the forbidden. Lust is the desire of the forbidden. And let me give you a secret on how to fight lust. Lust is always lying. Lust always says you'll be satisfied when you get the object you're lusting after. Then you get the object and lust hops to another object. Lust wants to lust. That's what it wants. Lust wants to never be satisfied. But to convince you, once you get the thing it's lusting for, then you'll be satisfied. And as soon as you get it, it says, now you've got to want something else. Don't fall for this ignorance. Instead of feeding lust, starve it to death until its power over you is gone. So remember your adoption. Do not be conformed to your ignorant passions. And lastly, be holy in all your conduct. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. The word holy just means to be cut, to separate, to be set apart. God is totally 
other. He's totally outside of us, but he's called us to be with him. We're to be like him. We're to, he is holy. We're called to be holy. We're to fix our eyes on Christ, which means God's holiness is our standard and goal. So as we seek to grow in holiness, we got to understand God's the standard. Not your friends, not your pastors, not the church, not like your Christian. Like, no, no, God is the standard, which leads all of us to humility. Like, Lord, I need your help. Yes, we all do. But that keeps us growing in holiness. If we just look at our friends to our left and right, we can find somebody that we feel like I'm better than you. Check, I'm good. Or if we look at somebody who we feel like is further along and better than us, and it's like, oh, I'm never going to be good enough. How about all of us stop looking at each other and let, let God be the standard. Be holy because he's holy. Let us all realize he's the standard. I can't do it. <laughs> let us all realize, no, no, no. We all need grace. We all need mercy. We all need help. We all need each other as we pursue God as our holiness because he's different. But understand, looking and beholding him is what transforms you. There's nothing more beautiful than Christ. Nothing more beautiful, more full, more loving, more joyful, more God-glorifying, more complete, more life-giving than the life of Christ. So in every category of your life, let your conduct be holy in every category. Your finances, your free time, your sexuality, your accountability, your identity, your purpose, your past, your present, your future, your relationships, your Sunday mornings, your every morning and afternoon and evening and night, your vocation, your education, everything about your life, bring it into conformity to Christ. He saved you. This is what he saved you for. And do this according to the scriptures. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God has always been about calling a people to be holy people. Remember your adoption. Rebel against your former passions and be holy in all your conduct. But making sure God is your standard in every category of life according to the scriptures. And I close reminding you, context is king. I am not a sketchball. <laughs> and holiness is not a bad word. The title of the message, live hopeful and holy. When you understand God's mercy and grace, you'll be hopeful and holy. Don't be afraid to get after it. This is what his spirit's been given to you to do. Let's close in prayer. Father.